You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode was recorded at a workshop session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Well, it's good to be with uh, all of you. Who came the furthest? Be bold, whoever you are. The, the one who came from you know, Hawaii, raise your hand. Who came the furthest? Anybody from the West Coast? All right, all right, awesome. Well, welcome to Nashville. Anybody from the East Coast? Anybody from outside the United States? No? All right, congratulations. Door prizes, door prizes go to you all. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, I was reading the uh, description that Emily sent me of, of what um, I've been asked to talk about uh, the other day. And um, the, I'm going to go with the, the description uh, even more than the title, even though the title and the description are, uh, are interrelated to one another. But the description is what I want to camp out on, which has to do with uh, what I think is the uh, contemporary Western church's greatest opportunity right now for witness in the world. Uh, and that is to learn, to relearn uh, the, the sanctified, redeemed art of love across the lines of difference. Uh, if there's one opportunity, I think, that exists for the people of Jesus to stand out in the world uh, with a better way, as the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, it is this, love across the lines of difference. Uh, are we agreed that social media is an ineffective political strategy? <laughs> are we agreed that social media is an ineffective persuasive strategy uh, with those who uh, may see things differently than than you or I do? So, so what I'd like to do is um, is take us into First Timothy six uh, to sort of set the the tone for the few things I'm going to. Talk about, and then we'll try to leave some time for for you know chatting back and forth after the fact. But First Timothy six, and I'll I'll uh, let's let's uh, let's start with verse three. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And so, um, so Slate Magazine, did you see this? Uh, This was uh, a few years ago. it was uh, the beginning of 2015, and it was a collection of 11 essays. Uh, and the umbrella title for that collection of 11 essays was 2014 as the Year of Outrage. And um, the subtitle of that collection of essays was From Righteous Fury to Faux Indignation. Everything we got mad about in 2014 and how outrage has taken over our lives. So there were 11 essays. Here are um, some of the titles. The Outrage Project, The Life Cycle of Outrage, What Outrage Means, Identity Outrage in 2014, The Cultural Outrage Audit, The Year in Liberal Outrage, The Year in Conservative Outrage, The Viral Outrage Hit, Outrage and the Endless Thanksgiving, uh, Righteous Outrage, and how outrage changed my life. Um, What 2014 did not know was that 2014 was not going to have the corner on outrage. (laughs) What 2014 didn't know was that the outrage of 2014 wasn't the end of the story. It was just the beginning. And here we are. Um, New York Times uh, op-ed writer Tim Kreider uh, has a nifty little phrase for this world that we find ourselves in right now, and he calls it outrage porn. 
outrage porn. Um, I think that um, outrage and sort of the gossip and the slander that go along with and the mischaracterization that go along with um, outrage resembles porn in a remarkable way. Because what does it do? It objectifies a person, turns them into a thing uh, instead of a person, and uh, it, 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 uh, it gets off on them without making any commitment to them uh, at their expense and at no expense to us. And uh, so what Kreider says is this. So many letters to the editor at the New York Times and comments on the Internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are, he's talking about mob culture. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. Some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. It's outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish, to get us off on righteous indignation. Our impulse to judge and punish. And so, uh, quite discouragingly, uh, Emma Green from The Atlantic, who writes about her observations about around religion, uh, mostly, came out with an article shortly after this called Taming Christian Rage. Uh, and of course, if you read that article, you'll see that uh, her thesis, which I think we'd all agree with, is that many Christians, uh, rather than being a part of the solution are actually a part of the problem. And many Christians, instead of uh, having a defusing effect on this culture of outrage, just feed it like everybody else does. And what I want to do this morning is talk about how the scriptures invite us, welcome us, demand us uh, into a more charitable way. And uh, here's my thesis, because grace is true. Uh, because holiness has reached out to sinfulness and adopted it and brought it into his family and called it daughters and sons instead of enemies. Because God had every right to be outrageously outraged toward us. And yet while we were still sinners opposed to him, uh, saying, see ya, to him in the rearview mirror, that's when Christ died for us. Not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. Not when we had virtue to present to him, but only vice. God demonstrates his own love, his own agape toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's first act of love for us was enemy love. Okay, so let's start there. Because that is true, Christians, and this, this has to do with our witness as well as our fidelity to the gospel itself, because grace is true, Christians should be the least offendable and the least offending people in the world. Because we have the resources for that in ways that the rest of the world does not. I think that at least in the public square we've lost our strongest apologetic, uh, which also represents our greatest opportunity. The strongest apologetic for Christians in the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about this in his, uh, his uh, masterful uh, exposition on the Sermon on the Mount. He says that Christians, Christians are going to draw the world to Christ, not by becoming like the world, but, but by virtue of how they become different than the world. Is that whole, that Acts 2 dynamic that the the quality of life that the people of Jesus were living, even though their beliefs were kind of weird, virgin birth, uh, you know, passing through an ocean, um, you know, to escape your enemies, walking on water, that's kind of strange, but they sure do love our people better than we love our people. They sure are kind. What other community in the world can, can a Jew and a Gentile love each other? There's something going on here that's otherworldly that can't really be explained. That's the apologetic. You know, that is the proof that Christianity is true, that it is different than the world in the way that the world cannot imitate. And the word is kindness. And the word is love. Right? Jesus says, by this, by this one thing, everybody in the world will know that you're with me. 
that you love one another. And the you, it's, it's plural, like the vast majority of the New Testament yous, which the vast majority of which were written to uh, Jewish-slash-Gentile audiences and male-female audiences in a misogynist, an overall misogynistic culture uh, that was you know, paternalistic and male-dominated and so on. Uh, and slaves and free, you know, all under the same roof. Um, loving one another for Jesus' sake. It's like, uh, like Don Carson says, Christians are a band of natural enemies who've come to love one another for Jesus' sake. Okay, so that's our apologetic. By this, all we'll know, all, all the world will know that you're mine because, uh, by how you love one another and also by how you love the world, which I'll get to in a few minutes. But there are two dynamics that, uh, the gospel call of friendship, draws us into, and, it, and, and, and they're both going to be stated in the negative. No more us against us, and no more us against them. That's the clarion call of the gospel. It's the clarion call of love the Lord your God, you know, who loved you while you were his enemy, and, and it's the clarion call of love your neighbor as yourself. And, and what's Jesus' um, you know, exhibit A for loving your neighbor? He puts a, a, a Samaritan in as the hero of the parable who rescues a, an Orthodox Jew while other Orthodox Jews ignore their own brother and a mortal enemy rescues him at, at, at his own expense. That's what a neighbor is. First and foremost, that's what a neighbor is. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. And so, so the us against us aspect, did you notice this? That he says that there are actually churches in which there are people who crave controversy and quarrels and who crave constant friction. Could you imagine a church like that? <laughs> He's talking about sibling discord in the community that is supposed to be known more than anything else by its love toward one another. Yeah, I remember um, a few years ago. So, remember Jesus' longest prayer, John 17, his longest recorded prayer. I pray, Father, that that they would be one. By this, the whole world will know you by your partisan politics. No. <laughs> and yet we behave that way, don't we? Or, or at least the people that we're trying to minister to, their, their parents, uh, behave that way. And you, that, that, that's sort of an inertia and a resistance that we have to, to work with indirectly as we're trying to serve the kids in a more gracious way. It's very complicated. You know, in... Uh, a few years ago, church pastor church experience. Maybe maybe some of you have had this experience as well. Um, a uh, gentleman from our church comes up to me and says, um, "This was during a heated election season." He says, "You won't be, you won't believe the conversation that we had in my small group this past week." And I said, "I bet you I will believe it. Tell me. <laughs> I've been in ministry for over 20 years, so I bet you I will believe it." But he was laid on me, and he said, "He said, well, uh, somebody in our small group got up." You know, with, with, it just stood up with excitement and said, "You guys can't. Can you believe how many non-Christians are coming to our church these days?" And somebody said, "Well, clearly you've had some conversations. You've met some people, etc." And she's like, "Well, no, I, I haven't really had a whole lot of conversations. But, but have you noticed all the bumper stickers for the other side in the parking lot?" Um, and and the guy said, I, "I didn't have the heart to tell her and the whole group that one of those stickers was mine." Um, so our church is about 60% red state and 40% blue. Um, and so, you know, we've got the polar extremes where all the noise happens, and then we've got the happy 95% in the middle. Um, but, I, you know, and I imagine, I imagine that's probably a dynamic for a lot of you as well. And um, one of the things Paul emphasizes here is sound doctrine. I know that's a, a core value of movements like Rooted and movements like, you know, the, the Reformed Presbyterian movement that we're part of. Did you know that the word sound, the literal translation of that word is healthy? Healthy. You know, one of my predecessors here at Christ Pres, uh, Dr. Charles McGowan. By the way, I'm not a doctor, but thank you for that. Um, Dr. Charles McGowan uh, says that uh, our... Doctrine, which, you know, Reformed Presbyterian people, we, we pride ourselves on our doctrine. Westminster Confession of Faith, history of, you know, heritage of John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Newton, the greats, you know. And, uh, and uh, he, says, he says, you know, sound doctrine is absolutely necessary. It's foundational. 
it's like the skeleton for a body. The body's not going to go anywhere unless it has the foundation of, 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 of healthy bones to carry it around. But if the skeleton is the only thing you see or even the main thing that you see about a body, it means either that body is malnourished or dead. And that's true of our faith. The main thing that people see is our strong convictions. That's the main thing. Not that we shouldn't have. We have to have strong convictions. But 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 if that's all they see, and, and it's not undergirded and surrounded with with you know with with the muscle and the skin and the tendons and the sinews of love, then it's just dead. You're just like the devil. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? They believe it all. They have more accurate theology than anybody in this room. They're just not surrendered to it. You see, you, you, you can be from hell and have better theology than John Calvin. That, that, was, that was the Achilles of the Pharisees. They prided themselves on being right, but they loved poorly. Us against us. You know, the pulse of healthy doctrine is that we are able to love across the lines of difference, not in spite of our convictions, but because of them. Christians, I, I, I would submit, not only have the best resource, but the only resource to empower us to be able to do that as a consistent way of life. Some positive examples in the scriptures Socioeconomic differences. You know, David and Jonathan, one's a, you know, the seventh son of a shepherd, kind of a nobody, you know, out in the fields, ignored by his own father. And then you've got Jonathan, who's the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, and they become best friends somehow. Somehow they meet each other and become best friends because of the commonality uh, of their connection to Yahweh. You know, politics. You ever, you ever notice this within the, uh, within the twelfth? disciples of Jesus, you have, you have Simon the Zealot, uh, you might call him a libertarian, small government guy, <laughs> resistance movement type, and Matthew the tax, tax collector, you might call him a big government guy, right? Uh, and who is it that says in one of the four Gospels, that Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot were disciples of Jesus, naming them by their vocations and political alignments. Matthew. Matthew is the one gospel writer who took pains to, to point that out. These two men for three years ministered together, lived as brothers together, died together, no indication in the scriptures that either one of them left his p political affiliation. And yet, their politics were not the thing that they looked to to give them affinity and kindredness and a tribe. It was Jesus Christ, who is both uber-conservative, not one jot or tittle of the law will fail to go unfulfilled, and uber-liberal welcoming sinners and eating with them, prostitutes, tax collectors and sinners and so on. Crazy. He's a revolutionary and yet he's wildly conservative. He's left and right and he's neither nor. Paul's letters, they start, so many of them, with the words grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, are you aware that grace to you was the standard Gentile salutation or Greek salutation to a letter and peace to you was the standard Jewish salutation? So he's putting in front of them reconciliation to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, red state and blue state, Hillary and Trump, you know, or Obama and Trump to you from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, he's, just, he's taking. You know, when, 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 when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, uh, slave nor free, he is taking every major division that exists in society in those days and says, we don't act like Rome. Inside the body of Christ, we don't act like Rome with one another, and we don't act like Rome toward Rome either. We've been called to a better way. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. You know, C.S. Lewis, Arminian to the core, got some funky beliefs. I don't know what I'd do without C.S. Lewis. My ministry would be so much less effective without this Son of God's perspective. My wife, you know, what, what's the first cross, cross-cultural relationship that God created? Adam and Eve. <laughs> you don't get more cross-cultural than male and female. Even the chromosome structures are different. I know that's a reductionistic statement and hyperbolic and everything else. <laughs> but uh, I think it signals something that God intends under him for people who are very different from one another to love one another beautifully, to be naked with one another and without shame. So you've got that. I don't know what I'd do without my wife. You know, I watch the Gilmore Girls now. <laughs> I, I grew up I grew up in an all-boys home, except our mom. She fended for herself. Even our pets were all male. And now it's been flipped on me. And uh, I've actually watched Gilmore Girls episodes by myself. <laughs> Voluntarily. Because over time, I have come to enjoy something that I would have never pursued. So you should check out the Gilmore Guys podcast. Oh, I didn't know it exists, but I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. we got a road trip coming up, so thank you for that. Gilmore Guys, in your face, ladies. So, uh, Pastor Ronnie Mitchell, Pastor Ronnie Mitchell, our church, uh, our, our Faith and Work Institute had Andy Crouch uh, out uh, last night, which is why we, we were not able to be here last night. But um, uh, we had a follow-up breakfast this morning. Um, it was it, with with uh, some pastors in the Nashville uh, area and community that do not experience the ascendancy of our city in, in ways that, that people do who live in our zip code. Um, you know, Nashville is sort of widely known as as one of the current sort of it cities on the rise. A hundred new people moving here every single day. Blah blah blah. Um, you know, third coast. Uh, you know, people coming from New York and from from Washington D.C. and Los Angeles and and uh, Seattle and San Francisco and so on. We've got this massive migration. Um, you know, entrepreneurism, business, higher education, government, it's all here and it's all seeming to flourish for those who are participating in all these things. And, and yet, uh, while the, the, the story on Nashville is, is a city on the rise, it's actually a city on decline for communities who don't get to write the story about what's happening because they don't have the power or the pen, or the access. And I've got a, 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 a lot of friends in Nashville, one of, which, one of whom is very special to me. Uh, his name is Pastor Ronnie Mitchell, and he lives now in a fully gentrified, hipsterified neighborhood. He's been a faithful pastor for almost 40 years, the same community. Everybody used to live in his neighborhood. It was the highest crime neighborhood in, in the history of Nashville, right? Some beautiful stuff happened in that context uh, through through their ministry and through their life together. And people have come in and they've said, you know, people who look like me have come in and said, we're going to make this neighborhood safe and therefore better, which means wider with higher taxes and renovated properties. But the underbelly of that is that people who've lived in those houses for generations are getting lowballed. They're, they're, they're being offered 30% of what their homes are worth. And because they don't have the economic training to understand that they're being ripped off, $120,000 sounds a lot when you've lived poor all your life. And so they sign, they move 45 miles away. And so you've got this church that is now a commuter church where, where the, the closest member lives about 15 miles away. Uh, and so they have no community dynamic, no ability to serve the neighborhood, but, but they're, they're still together because of the, the internal beauty. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm getting on a tangent here, but it's not a tangent. This is a love your neighbor thing. We've got to think about these things, and we've got to work towards something more just than this. And I don't know what the answer is. But 
I would be utterly clueless about these things were it not for my friendship with Pastor Ronnie, who's helping me understand what it means in my context to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And he gets to be the one to tell me whether or not I'm doing those things. I can't look in the mirror and tell myself I am or I'm not doing these things. I need somebody who is effective by what I do and what I do not do. And by how I lead my people and how I do not lead my people. What would I do without Jonathan Edwards? He had different views on church, church government. If there's anything to divide over, it's your views on church government. I do. What would we do without his, you know, his, his beautiful example of, of theology on fire, of religious affections, of, 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 of charismata and reformedness? put together as you know, two sides of the same, two essential sides of the same coin. What would I do without Brennan Manning, a Roman Catholic who's taught me more about grace than any Protestant that I've ever read or ever met? Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his German nationality of what it means that when Christ bids a man or calls a man, he bids him come and die. You know, the power of the gospel, here, here's, here's the summary here. Inside the church, the power of the gospel overcomes partisan attitudes. Who do we think we are? slinging mud at our brothers and sisters in Christ for him Christ died. Truth of the matter is, you can have one church on one side of your town that believes every word of the Bible and cannot fathom how you could call yourself a Christian and be a Democrat. You go on the other side of town and have another church that believes 100% of every word of the Bible who cannot fathom how you could call yourself a Christian and be a Republican. we got to figure out something other than that. Right? The power of the gospel leads us to expand our us and to narrow our them. The more on, faithfully on the narrow path we are walking, the broader our embrace is going to be. The more conservative, truly conservative we are in our theology, the, 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 the more truly committed we are to every single word of the scriptures from, from Genesis 1 all the way to, to the end of Revelation... The more conservative we are in our beliefs, the more liberal we're going to be in the way that we love. So no more us against us and no more us against them. I'll be a lot shorter on this one. It's all the same principles apply. You know, the Bible talks about how elders, if you're going to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, you have to have a good reputation with outsiders. That means you have to have non-Christian friends. You have to have have non-Christians identifiable non-Christians who like you, who say they like you and want to be like you. You have to have a good reputation with those on the outside. You know, Luke 15.1, this is just following in the shadow of Jesus who welcomes sinners and eats with them. You know, this is such a contrast to the scolding Pharisees, isn't it? You remember the Pharisee prayer in Luke 18 where, where he says, Thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, you know, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. You know, there, there are a few things that corrupt the Christian witness more than Christians who scold. Um, show of hands. How many of you have heard a changed life testimony that goes like this. I fell in love with Jesus because a Christian or group of Christians pointed their finger at me and lectured me about my ethics. <laughs> Anyone? You know, I've been in ordained ministry for 22 years. I've been a Christian for 32 years. I've never met a single person with that story. I've met a lot of people who've said that Christians surprised me with a love that I didn't expect. And that was the gateway. That I became interested in Christ because of the way that Christians didn't judge me. See, it's the whole 1 Corinthians 5 thing. Like Inside the church, if somebody's walking out of line with, with the gospel, the whole community needs to get on this. And and you know we need to, to raise the bar and, and press one another to walk in line with the gospel, just like Paul did with Peter, opposed him to his face in front of them all, right? Inside the church. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5 about those outside the church, particularly you know, his case in point is those who are sexually immoral. 
not saying you should judge them. Be their friends. Be their friend. What business is it of ours to judge those on the outside? That's God's job. They need to like you and want to be like you because of how I've rubbed off on you because I welcome sinners and I eat with them. So there's a, uh, there's a chaplain from Harvard who, uh, who wrote this essay in the Huffington Post. And the, the title of, of the article was Tips for Christians Talking to Non-Christians. This is from a chaplain at Harvard. And he says, The divide between Christians and atheists is deep. I'm dedicated to bridging that divide, to working with atheists, Christians, and people of all different beliefs and backgrounds on building a more cooperative world. We have a lot of work to do. My hope is to help foster better dialogue between Christians and atheists and that together we can work to see a world in which people are able to have honest, challenging, and loving conversations across lines of difference. So the Harvard chaplain's name is Chris Stedman, who identifies as queer and atheist. Secular humanist chaplain saying things that Christians should be saying. If a Christian won't say it, God will raise up someone else. A non-Christian or, you know, in the Old Testament, even an animal. <laughs> to speak the word of God if the prophets won't. This liberates, though, doesn't... I mean, I'm thinking about youth culture, too, where, I mean, identity politics and social media crap, like, it's so... And porn access, it is so tarnished... Um, innocence among children and youth. You have to grow up so early now. Um, it is so tarnished that we have to get love right. We have to show a better way. And it's not by leading with a scold in hopes that somebody will respond in guilt and shame to grace. It is not our repentance that leads God to be kind. It is God's kindness that leads us to repent. And our methodologies have to mirror that. You know, the woman caught in adultery in, in John chapter 8, what does Jesus say to her after all of the scolders and shamers leave, realizing their own hypocrisy after Jesus has called them out for it? He says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no, sir. You remember what he says after this? Neither do I condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. He doesn't discard ethics. He doesn't discard grace. He emphasizes both. But the order is everything. I do not condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. Reverse the order of those two sentences and you lose Christianity, you lose Jesus. Don't dare reverse the order. It liberates how we relate and minister. It frees us to invite students and anyone who loves them to belong before they believe. It frees us to embrace people before and whether they ever agree with the truth or not. It is not only possible to deeply disagree with and deeply love somebody at the same time. It is imperative. You think about the rich ruler. When, you know, if you ever had a denial of the gospel that's overt and explicit, it was that, right? You know, Jesus says, you know, follow me. It's either me or money. I suggest you follow me. That's going to turn out better for you. And having much wealth, you know, his money had him around the neck and says that he turns and he walks away. But there are a couple of details in there that we can easily miss if we're just reading quickly through it. First, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He didn't look at him and scold him. He didn't look at him and, and, and you know, read him the riot act. He looked at him and loved him as if he were a harassed man like a sheep without a shepherd. It's like that last line in... In, in, in the, the book or the movie Wonder where little Augie Pullman says 
be kind because every person you meet is fighting a hard-hidden battle. Jesus is able to see that. You want to know why Jesus is kind to prostitutes while everybody else is ignoring them and being mean to them and using them? Because every person you meet is fighting a hard-hidden battle. You want to, you want to know why Jesus included the obnoxious elder brother as well as the prodigal younger brother who just came home in, in the invitation of grace and, 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 and saying, all I have is yours and come into the party. This is all for you. You want to know why he, he included the jerk for Jesus as well as the, the prodigal who just came home? Because he can see clearly that everybody you meet is fighting a hard-hidden battle. The arrogance of the Pharisees is just a compensation strategy. You know, it's like Shrek, you know, looking, looking at the Tower of Farquaad, you know, this <laughs> massive tower of Farquaad, and, and he looks down at Donkey and he says, looks like somebody's compensating, compensating for something, right? This little short man's complex, right? And I'm going to build a big old tower and put a lot of other people in harm's way to make myself look big and strong. There's a lot of truth in there. The other thing that the rich, ruler, the rich ruler account gives us is the man walks away not feeling judged, not feeling punished, not feeling put in his place. It says he walked away sad. What would our ministries look like? What, 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 what kinds of changes might we consider making in our ministries such that what happened most often when people say, say no to the gospel is they walk away sad instead of angry. Grieved that, that, that perhaps I'm missing out on something. Like a, a FOMO effect rather than a screw you. You know? Like, like, and I think we can probably all imagine maybe just a few tweaks or maybe a few radical overhauls. It depends on what your context is. But what would need to change and be transformed and made more like Christ uh, in order for that to become the dynamic where we're looking at everybody and we're seeing a hard-hidden battle behind whatever the mess is on the outside. And by virtue of the way that we're treating people in light of that, those who walk away, walk away sad. and Others are drawn in, not in spite of Christians, but because of them. You know, Peter said it this way, in your hearts honor Christ, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. The Reformed folks say yes. <laughs> Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious. Last, last bit here. Here is what will transform our communities. Not a new vision statement, even though vision statements are helpful. Not a new strategy and strategic plan, even though strategic plans are helpful. Drawing near to Jesus and understanding who he is and who we are before his face. That's the secret sauce for transformation. Our basis for being kind is the outrage of God the Father was redirected toward God the Son on our behalf, and God the Son voluntarily received it. God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He was despised and rejected, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, with God was laid on him. Your judgment day has been relocated from the future to the past. God will never, ever, ever again hold anything against you. Ever. No condemnation for those in Christ. None. That's, that's God's answer to Paul's wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death, which, by the way, these are words that he's crying out as a minister of the gospel. He's not at the beginning of his faith. He's, in fact, toward the very end is when he sounds most like self-loathing. I am the chief of sinners. But you know, remember what comes after that? He's gushing with a doxology about the grace and mercy of God. I guess that God has just positioned me, wanted to position me as an example to the rest of the world. If God would be interested in somebody like that, surely there's space for me in the kingdom of God. Surely there's access for me 
if there's access for somebody like Paul and like the adulterous murderous David and, and so on. The punishment that brought us peace was laid fully on Jesus Christ. We were the offenders against the one who loved us to the uttermost. You know, the Father in heaven would legitimately feel right because of who he is and wronged because of who we've been. He couldn't overlook it, but he also couldn't bear to be without us. And so he did the only thing that could be done in order to bridge that gap, and that is to stand in our place. This being true, and also this being true, we were his them. Right? America, newsflash, is not, never has been, never will be the center of the Christian story. Ever! <laughs> From the ends of the earth, Jesus was thinking of us. This first century Middle Eastern refugee Jew with brown skin who was poor all of his life, spent the good part of his adult life homeless, never spoke a word of English, did not hang out with white people, <laughs> was crucified by white people at the urging of his fellow brown people. And he said to his disciples, go get him. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We're the ends of the earth. That's who we are. You know, when you talk about your missions program, you are the ends of the earth. <laughs> you're sending your missionaries back. Don't think for a moment you're sending them to the ends of the earth. You are the ends of the earth. Unless you're planting churches in your own town, you are the ends of the earth. And what a glorious thing that Jesus thought of you and me just as much as he thought of Paul and Peter and Mary and Rahab and Tamar and David. And the list goes on. He even called Judas friend as Judas is in the act of betraying him. That was his posture toward the son of perdition. What could his posture possibly be toward his daughters and sons then? If he calls his greatest enemy, his friend, what must he calls us? call us? Daughters and sons. There is no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, no slave, no free. No hierarchies. No us against them in the kingdom of God. Thanks be to God. So let's talk. Uh, I think we... Uh, and I'll close this. Uh, I had a prayer that I wanted to share with us, but I'll, I'll close this at noon uh, with that. But let's let's talk. Yeah, what do you want to talk about? I feel like it's really easy to I teach on this and I try to make temporary fixes that unite different people. But our natural tendency is to hang out with people you feel comfortable with, mm -hmm. naturally connect with. Yeah. Do you know any strategies, practical strategies, to help foster a sense of like, community that? Continues after just a, a break gap in a small group this one time, and then they go back to their normal friends. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think there there are two answers to that question as I see it. One is tribes are okay, uh, affinity groups are okay, uh, tribalism is not. Uh, in other words, it's it's perfectly natural for um, you know people with similar life experiences of the same generation, um, you know. Etc. to have meaningful, deep friendship with one another. And I, I think in today's climate, there, there's maybe a little bit of, you know, confusion about that. That, that it's actually okay. That, that actually, when God organized Israel, he organized them in 12 different tribes. They, they were very distinct, and there was a unique commonality within each tribe. Uh, it's tribalism that becomes the problem, where one tribe or one you know people group begins to feel either superior to or inferior to another that's where the gospel has somehow um just been disconnected from the way we're seeing things uh and just your, your question i'm sorry is more of a practical question um and i can only tell you what we've done we we, we put 
um, we put people in front uh, and we do panel discussions and testimonies and things of that sort who represent the minority perspective and the minority voice and we do it pretty often um, and uh, and it you know and it's it's uh, still uh, as in your case a very slow gradual transformation right so when I got here this this church this was like six six and a half years ago it was it was a get-out-the-vote red state church for years. And um, you know, one of the first things I did, it was kind of controversial. I said, we're taking the American flag out of the sanctuary. Uh, we're a church for all nations, not just one. Um, and, um, and I'm going to start saying some nice things about some Democrats from the pulpit. Um, and... In other words, but you know, you got to be careful because you don't want to be like so provocative that people won't hear what you're saying. Um, but but you got to throw in little nudges, like instead of quoting John Calvin, I'm going to quote uh, Martin Luther King this Sunday, you know, and, and, and I'm going to quote Martin Luther King saying something that Calvin said as well. And then I'm going to follow it and I'm going to say, oh, by the way, Calvin said this too. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, to 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 constantly keep people guessing where you're coming from. <laughs> The longer they can be uncertain about where you are on the most contested issues of our time, you know, race, uh, sexuality, well, sexuality, you need to be clear, um, but not a jerk about it, but not a jerk about it, clear and hospitable, um, race, sexuality, um, you know, just red state, blue state stuff, identity politics, me too, um, you know, all of that. The more measured, uh, the more sane, uh, the more um, willing to listen to every perspective and spit out the bones and eat the meat from everyone's perspective. Um, eventually, eventually, you know, let's let's say let's say cultural intelligence and cross-cultural empathy. And when I say culture, I'm not just talking about skin color or um, I'm talk also talking about economics, I'm talking about politics, I'm talking about generational differences, any kind of, you know, sort of tension that you can imagine in your community. Um, give the nod to every perspective as much as you possibly can. Um, um, the safe thing to do is just to quote, quote sources and praise sources that are already highly esteemed in your monolithic one way of thinking community, if that's what you're in. Start to insert um, virtue stories from the other side. You know, um, be the kind of person who's conciliatory and who models reconciliation first in your speech, also in your relationships. And maybe those relationships won't first happen in your church. So have very visible public relationships with people outside of your church who represent whoever the common enemy is inside your church. Um, and be very, very patient. It's a slow burn. Uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, this is what, this is one thing that Andy Crouch was really encouraging to us over breakfast about. Um, cause there, there are some of us, myself included, just saying it's so frustrating. Like, like, what's the point of calling Lazarus out of the tomb when Lazarus is going to die again? Which is just kind of my way of saying, what's the point of, of, uh, you know, Pouring, pouring all of you know this this effort into into you know getting behind the leadership in minority communities when we all know that within five years that neighborhood is going to be completely gentrified by white hipsters, you know funded by their rich mamas and daddies. Um, like, what's the point? And and the point is every opportunity you have to to, to deposit a sign of the kingdom and, and, and a picture of the kingdom that's to come, do it. Even if you're going to get slapped in the face, do it. Um, because the kingdom, while not fully here, uh, is coming. And, you know, as N.T. Wright so eloquently says, our job as Christians is to take every opportunity we can to, 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 to bring some of God's future into, into God's present, present now when he gives us the ability to do that. And so that probably doesn't answer your question. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of great books that have been written on kind of methodologies, but I, I think just modeling it and teaching it... Um, but do it in a process, you know. Don't don't choke them with meat when they're only ready for applesauce. But but gradually take them from applesauce to you know 
a ham sandwich, you know, you know, um, and this involves some strategic thinking. Hopefully your whole team uh, is on the same page. That's that's pretty important uh, as well. So, sorry, I'm talking too much. Mm -hmm. no. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it helpful for, because uh, you talked a lot about like kind of pulpit work, kind of debunking, um, you know, platforming other people who are different. Yeah. Is a, is a dialogue helpful? Yes. Um, and how can that happen with people who are very passionate about mm -hmm. their stances or beliefs or values? Like, yeah. how do you kind of like, you know, like lead that well? Yeah. So um, I'll give you a couple of examples. We, we, we do panel discussions where we put the, the varying perspectives on stage. Um, the Sunday before the presidential election, we put a... Uh, we put the governor of Tennessee, who is a, a Republican, and Michael Ware, who worked in uh, the Obama administration, on the same stage together. Uh, and, you know, just kind of put the questions out, you know, what do you have in common? What's different about you? And what was beautiful was, was how both of these, and, we, you know, we, we knew ahead of time that they would not be polarizing. Um, you know, be very careful who you select for these kind of conversations. But, um, you know, Governor Haslam was able to say, look, um, I've taken it on the chin for my own party for um, wanting everybody in the state of Tennessee to have health care and for, um, you know, having served on the board of World Vision and, and being very passionate personally and otherwise about the care of immigrants and refugees and, you know, the flourishing of, of, of immigrants and refugees, especially those who come here vulnerable, seeking asylum and so on. And Michael Ware would say, you know, I, I, I'll never be, I'll probably never be, um, you know, put forward for higher office because I'm pro-life. Mm -hmm. And and so both of them are demonstrating how they have, you know, they, they, they do identify the way they do because of, various convictions they have under Christ um, about, you know, what flourishing looks like for, for a society. Um, but they are also so much more, they're, they're probably 90% the same in the way they see things. And, and just, just um, to put models like that was really helpful. We did another one a few years ago on race, uh, about two or three years ago, and that included a, a Native American uh, named Charles Robinson who lives here in Nashville. Uh, it included uh, Thomas Hunter, who is a bivocational pastor who also works full-time uh, in the sheriff's office. And he's African-American, um, you know, friend to our community, dear friend. Uh, and then uh, the third was uh, Dr. Paul Lim, who's our scholar-in-residence. He's a Korean-American, uh, sort of second-generation uh, immigrant, uh, teaches at Vanderbilt. He's also on our staff here at the church. And then the, the fourth was uh, Richie Sessions, who does campus ministry now, but, but did lead a, uh, a church. He was senior pastor of a large church in Memphis, Tennessee, which is one of the most racially polarized uh, cities anywhere. Uh, and, um, you know, that church was actually founded on uh, the desire to remain segregated. Um, and so in order to become a member, you had to essentially, it's like some of the, the white pre-Civil War nostalgic country clubs do. You have to be recommended by three members, you know, and, and the reason was so that, you know, all new members could be compatible with the congregation, which means so that they all could be white. Uh, and, and Richie very publicly led uh, that church to public repentance uh, over that awful uh, aspect of their history, and he, he, he paid a price for that. Um, but but, but in, any, in, in any event, um, you know, it was a, about a two-hour conversation on power dynamics uh, and, and, and on, um, you know, injustices as well as opportunities under the gospel for not only reconciliation but for justice and, and so on. Uh, and so we've done stuff like that. With, oh, by the way, you can view all of these. If you go to our church's website, we have a page uh, w which has the videos of all the forums we've done in the past few years. So I think there are like five of them. Um, the next one's with John Anazu, who wrote this book called Confident Pluralism. Um, and he speaks more into the political space. He's a, he's a uh, Christian. He's a professor at Washington University School of Law and has done a lot um, on the national platform to promote um, 
civil pluralism, uh, you know, where, you know, let the best ideas win, but don't punish people for their ideas. Um, uh, and, and, you know, he's advocating for re- religious freedom, but, but from a, from an academic, you know, more kind of covert way. So we're just trying to put those. And, and by the way, most communities, your, your, your communities are going to have local resources. You don't have to bring, you don't have to be a big church and bring people in from Washington, D.C. Like if there are problems in your community, there are probably figureheads uh, who are going to be very effective spokespeople, men and women, uh, you know, for whatever their perspectives are. And don't think you have to bring Christians in. You know, one of the people in our, our conversation with John and Ozzy, we, we, we explicitly and, and specifically wanted to get a non-Christian in that conversation because we we're going to talk about civility uh, and love across the lines of difference, et cetera. And, and, um, and so, again, I'm running my mouth, but, but, but uh, panel discussions have been really, really helpful uh, where, where you have firsthand perspectives, like not an expert on Native Americans, you know, who's white, but a Native American, you know, uh, uh, speaking from that perspective representatively. But you've also got to be selective because they have to share your philosophy of civility, um, which is not always easy to find. So, Can you talk about how you model this in your staff culture, model friendship in your staff culture? Um, well, yes. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that we... We do. I would say that our, our diversity on our staff is is uh, more uh, political uh, and more. Um, there's political diversity. There is generational diversity on our staff. Uh, there is um, only a smidge of ethnic diversity. Unfortunately, the zip codes that that we're in and that, that surround us are pretty monoethnic. Um, uh, but what we do, uh, and we've got every every personality on the Enneagram, you know. Uh, uh, but but what what we what we do intentionally um, with with every staff meeting is we start we start every staff meeting with what we call either benedictions or living eulogies. You know, why do we have to wait till somebody's dead before we start saying nice things about them, right? And so so we start our staff meetings with living eulogies and and. Um, and so we'll take, you know, 10 minutes or so where people can just say, hey, I noticed, um, you know, Christ at work in you in this situation. Or, hey, be encouraged, uh, blah, 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 blah. And, 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 and so there's a lot of that, you know, sort of tone setting before we do anything else. And, and, and that's been a really good, I think, very fruitful discipline for us to just cultivate intentionality uh, in terms of, of demonstrating appreciation and gratitude for one another and and uh and along with that we actually just started uh recently um a monthly staff enrichment um time where we essentially take the whole morning and uh it's designed for the sharing of testimonies uh you know telling telling your story and giving you know all different you know staff members voices it's not just like the directors it's you know, it's it's the mid-level folks, and it's it's the the folks who just came on staff. It's it's um, you know, if you work here, you, you know, you get to share, and we get to hear how the work of God is happening in your life and in your ministry. And then we uh, will pray over each other and things of that sort. And so, just you know, one one friend of mine who does this really well is Matt Chandler uh, at Village Church in uh, in Dallas. Um, if there's somebody there who's willing to email you. Uh, what they do for their their staff culture, um, you know, sort of thing, it's really wonderful. And we we've actually copied, tried to copy a lot of what they've done um, here. But um, I think the summary word is intentionality. It, it's just got to be you've got to have a strategy to encourage and enrich and shepherd your staff uh, that's just as robust as your st- strategy to grow the church. Um, and the two sort of feed each other <laughs> and without one you, you probably lose the other eventually and, and so um, I don't know if that helps it's kind of vague but so yep okay um, so let's close with uh, a prayer uh, in the spirit of this talk and topic from uh, St. Francis of Assisi who's famous Roman Catholic very sanctified Roman Catholic at that um, let's pray Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 
Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Amen. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.